Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Climate change is the topic of this show, Tyler, and I think this is the best guest we have ever had to discuss one of the most important issues facing the world, I would say. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Emily Mazakarati, who is the global head of Moody's Climate Solutions. Moody's, the financial analyst uh, firm, uh, investment advisory firm worldwide. Everyone's heard of Moody's uh, bond rating services, of course. Emily Mazakarati, global head of uh, Moody's Climate Solutions, and formerly the founder and CEO of a company called 427 a climate analytics firm that she founded in 2012. 427 was acquired by Moody's in July 2019, is how Emily got her pathway to Moody's. And prior to that, uh, Emily was working as the head of carbon analysis for Thomson Reuters, a financial analysis uh, company, uh, back in 2010. So Emily's been in the climate analytics business now for more than a decade. And I think one of the worldwide experts on the topic, so I'm really looking forward to talking to Emily today. Yeah, super high voltage guest here, Peter. Yeah. I am too. This is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, if you're an, at all like me, uh, you might have grown up uh, in a good uh, capitalist household where you were taught the tenets of the market and that there's supply and demand, etc. And uh, what I find so interesting about this is as climate change becomes increasingly obvious that we are uh, confronting something that will disrupt our socioeconomic system, will the markets adjust and move? And Emily is like right in the heart of that question. So, yeah. Peter, I am really looking forward to diving into this one. Uh, but first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you. Enjoy the show. Emily, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us today. Thank you, and what an introduction. <laughs> well, I have to say that I, I think there are a couple, of, when I'm looking at this topic and, and uh, researching for the show, it seems that there's two questions on the table, Emily, uh, that you are involved in, and would be curious if this, uh, if this is accurate or not. Uh, the world is changing. We know climate change is a real uh, event on the planet. Two questions come up when it comes to uh, financial services matters. One, how not to lose your ass financially in the transition. What can you, what you should not be uh, putting your money into and what you might, uh, uh, might avoid. And then how can you invest uh, wisely to benefit from the transition that is going to occur? Is that sort of a fair assessment of what your responsibilities are as the global head of climate solutions at Moody's? I think that's a good summary of some of the key questions that uh, banks and investors are struggling with right now. My role is to uh, oversee the development of analytics and data sets and products that will help those investors and banks um, make better decisions and avoid uh, <laughs> such negative outcomes and, and hopefully identify the opportunities. Well, Emily uh, is a pioneer, really, in this space. And uh, Peter, you mentioned it in the intro, founder of 427. Emily, could you tell us the story of how you came to found that company and uh, how it ended up being acquired by Moody's? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, and, and it's 
quite topical because it goes back to Hurricane Sandy and uh, and New York being underwater, which might sound a little familiar to uh, to folks right now. I um, so I've actually been working at the intersection of climate and financial markets for for over fifteen years and worked on carbon markets for a long time. So trying to figure out how to provide economic incentives for companies to reduce emissions in a way where the government wouldn't have to say exactly how, where and when those reductions needed to happen. And after working on that for uh, a number of years, uh, seeing the the lack of progress with uh, US climate policy in particular, um, and the uh, evolution in uh, science where uh, at the time we had the latest IPCC report showing that we were locked in a lot of impacts from climate change. I uh, decided to found a company to help connect the dots between scientists and uh, corporates, investors, banks. So the private sector would have a good understanding of what lay ahead. Um, and, and so Hurricane Sandy comes into, into play because I had literally just quit my job and, and was trying to think about what this new company would look like. Um, and I found myself almost stranded in New York. Uh, I, I rode the storm in, in Washington, D.C. instead. Uh, and just really struck by the lack of preparedness from very large, very well-resourced financial institutions in Manhattan. The fact that the New York Stock Exchange was closed for, for three days, um, the fact that a number of uh, organizations were completely flooded and, and, and in their words, just had no idea this was coming, really struck me because scientists knew it was coming. And so there was clearly a missing connection here. And the other thing that struck me in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, or Superstorm Sandy, was the importance of the private sector, again, of businesses in providing resilience for the local community. And it could be small things like companies, local restaurants that were letting neighbors charge their cell phone because they had a generator, or maybe they were providing hot meals. And, um, and conversely, businesses that were closed and, and may never have recovered for some of them, um, that would create long lasting impact in terms of, of a community's long-term welfare. And so that was really the, the impetus to create for 27 was to provide analytics to help translate the findings from the science, climate data developed by the largest research organizations around the world and help distill that down and make that accessible to private business decision makers so that they would be able to prepare in a way that would not only help them, but would also help the community and society at large. And what was the reception of this idea? I mean, obviously, Moody's becomes interested with and, and, and invests in your company, I guess, in 2019. Um, and I believe you started the firm in 2012. So really, you 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 were you were out there early. You were really out there early. And I'm I just I'm very interested in the space at that time and how it changed. Um, you know, were, were there, did you have competitors in this space? Um, and just, can you characterize like what it was, what during that period of time, how did this space change to the point where Moody's would take an interest? That's, that's a great question. Um, it was a little bit lonely out there at first, I have to say. Out Got on, a, a out on the island. <laughs> sort of. Um, lots of quizzical look. Why? Why would I care? What are you talking about? Climate change is so far out. This is not within my risk management or investment horizon. And uh, and what we saw is either we, we, we did a lot of market survey to understand and we saw corporations in particular that either said, oh, yes, climate change is already happening and we've got it. We, right? we manage storms and so we, we, we've got it. Or a lot of the majority of companies saying, well, this is so far out, it's not worth paying attention right now. And so our goal was really trying to think about how we can bring in the data, because climate data is always looking very far out in terms of time horizon. We're looking 10, 20, 30, 100 years out. And of course, that's, that's too far for planning. But at the same time, if you just look at current day and historical data, you're not understanding what's ahead and, and how bad things are gonna get. Um, so that was the, the first few years. And then things started uh, turning around with a couple of key developments, the Paris um, Agreement in 2015, the launch of the task force 
on climate risk. Uh, and that was uh, spearheaded by the Bank of England, the Financial Stability Board. So all of a sudden you had large, very influential uh, financial institution and um, regulators saying climate is something we need to pay attention to now, even if it feels far out. Um, so that really helped the market shift. And all of a sudden, we saw more interest um, in understanding the, the data. And then, of course, there was just the, <laughs> the, the extreme weather events um, <clears throat> that we saw happening years after years. I remember 2017 is a particularly bad year with uh, with three uh, major hurricanes and uh, wildfires, and it was one of those aha moment for uh, in the U.S. in particular, where we started seeing demand for the data that was not driven by regulation or you know wanting to do the right thing, but just purely by oh this is a risk I need to manage it. Um, so the market went a really long way. Um, the timing of the, the, the conversation with uh, Moody's was just around the time that PG&E, uh, the utility in California, went bankrupt following um, uh, the wildfires that it had caused and the liability that came with those um, with this responsibility. Um, and so, of course, for a large uh, institution focused on uh, data provider focused on on risk management and credit risk, credit ratings like Moody's, um, they had been watching climate for a long time. But this was also the confirmation that climate was very much material and that it could make a large utility go bankrupt. Mm. Um, so that. That's how we went from from being a, a small shop uh, doing something that nobody wanted to to really being at the at the heart of the financial system as you as you mentioned um, Moody's and credit rating agencies in general and, and data providers are really at the heart and uh, and helping drive a lot of decisions investment and lending decisions and so having a large uh, group like this really embed climate into all of its models and data analytics and risk uh, products is really, really influential. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC that you referred to, was founded in 1988. This year was, I believe, the sixth update of the IPCC report, which unequivocally stated that climate change was a having a significant and massive impact in a number of sectors around the world and that the problem was driven by human action, uh, anthropomorphic change. Uh, that In this 23-year period we're talking about, you picked up and created 427 in, in 2012. Uh, you know, we, Tyler and I were discussing this before the show. That the, the, the market, we all expect the free market. We've been taught that the free market is incredibly perceptive, understands opportunities. One of the great things about free market economic systems versus centralized control is the capacity to be flexible and move capital into positions of of uh, great resource, uh, you know, and 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 return. Um, and 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 I think it failed in this case. It's hard to say that given the IPCC's analysis going back 23 years ago. Uh, and only now does it seem that the investment community and the market system is beginning to incorporate climate change as a significant factor in financial thinking, both in terms of risk and opportunity. What do you think accounts for the fact that the free market system failed to respond to climate change until, let's just say, in the last couple of years or since uh, it just doesn't seem it, what a slow burn? What happened? Yeah, well, let's let's uh, let's stick to the Econ 101 framework. Um, what enables markets to work is good information. If you don't have information, then you can't make the right decisions. Um, and what we had here was a combination of two things. Um, the signal coming from the scientific community was um, maybe not. Uh, presented in a way that was easy to understand for business or financial decision makers. So the IPCC language uh, with a lot of emphasis on uncertainty, um, I think was not easy to decrypt. And then it was very, very further confused and blurred to say the least by uh, advocacy and, uh, and lobbying groups that 
promoted science uh, or pseudoscience that uh, advocated that climate change wasn't happening. So on the one hand, there was at the sort of at a high level a signal about climate change that was very confusing in the US. Even today, you'll hear people sort of second guessing, but I thought, I'm not sure, is it really happening? Um, and then the other missing piece of the information was this ability to access climate data. And, and the reason for that is uh, climate data is, is not for the faint of heart. It comes in very extensive, very large data set. In, uh, and you have very detailed projections going out decades. So you can you know, find out temperature projections for January 23rd, 2049, right? But that's not decision useful. There's a lot of analysis that needs to happen for it to become a signal about what kind of change in temperature might come over time compared to historical conditions. At what threshold does that become material for a company based on its processes or activities? So there was this whole translation layer um, and processing layer that was missing that has become a really thriving industry. And, and going back to your earlier question, there are now many, many firms doing climate risk analytics uh, because there are so many different needs um, and, and you, you need to process the data a little differently uh, each time, depending on what the, what the end user is. So I think that's what um, led the market to making poor decision <laughs> related to climate change in the past. And I think we're seeing a big change now, uh, driven by both the acknowledgement that it is financially material and that we are going to hit a really big wall if we don't change uh, some things, but also because regulating agencies have uh, really taken up the topic and we, we expect regulation across um, across a range of sectors asking for more transparency and uh, more um, inclusion, accounting of climate risk in, in risk management processes. How do you uh, think that, I guess, the investment class, people who are, who are really wanting to know uh, what, what risks are going to, what's going to happen into the future with regard to climate? If it is, are we going to see benefits? Are we going to see risks? Interpreting this. How are they uh, under, how, how is this communicated? Could you kind of take us behind the curtain? If you were consulting with a client and they were asking you uh, to describe risk, and so are, you, are you dealing in like in five-year probabilities? Uh, how does that work? Can, I, I realize that's a broad question, but I would just love to hear how you, how you talk about it. Sure. So we're we're very data driven, um, more than consulting driven. But the type of data and analytics that we provide range from uh, first understanding purely the relevant science for that location. So we're going to look for temperature, for example, at what was um, the historical average and maybe historical extreme, the 95th percentile temperature. How are those extremes expected to evolve over time? Um, we're going to look at how much precipitation might fall and how much extreme, how much many more days of uh, of rain we might see in an area. So starting very granular, bottom up, um, what's what is the science saying? And then we turn those into indicators, uh, indices zero to one hundred, so that you don't need to understand the science to know if it's bad or good, <laughs> if it's high risk or low risk. Um, so that's the basic exposure or identification metrics where we help people understand what's at risk where. And then the next layer of data that we provide, and that's that's part of the um, of the value of uh, being part of Moody's and, and working with teams of economists and credit risk modelers and financial analysts, where this data now feeds into a range of models where we are able to estimate the impact of climate on the probability of default from a residential mortgage or commercial mortgage, uh, potential impact on uh, again, probability of default, the risk of a company going bankrupt for uh, for a large corporation or um, other asset classes. Um, we also have teams who are looking at how our long-term GDP projections, economic growth projections, uh, affected by 
potential impacts of climate change. So moving away from uh, or, or building on maybe uh, the initial identification layer that, uh, that 427 provided uh, and really adding on the financial uh, perspective so that when uh, a bank or an insurance looks at this data, they don't have to do all the analysis or all the thinking themselves. They can just look at how is this different with and without climate, and therefore, do I make a different decision based on that information? That makes sense, and, and something that businesses are quite comfortable uh, analyzing, not particularly in the subject area, but the idea of market risk or changing conditions is a common uh, repertoire of business analytics and business investment strategy, isn't it? I mean, what, what is unique about climate as a risk as opposed to other uh, significant risks that a business might face in terms of, say, competition or a global pandemic? Or what is it about climate change that makes the analysis of risk different from other business risks uh, that are uh, that are evaluated commonly in the corporate world? So the, there's a term that was coined by Mark Carney, who was at the time the chair of the Bank of England and, and now the UN Special Envoy on, uh, on climate and uh, on climate risk in the financial sector, um, which is the tragedy of the horizon. And the reason what mm. makes climate different is we know it's going to get really bad. <laughs> um, it's very hard to predict a pandemic or a cybersecurity attack or other, uh, you know, black swan um, that can come up at any time and, uh, and you may or may not have control over it. Here, we have very detailed, very sophisticated models telling us that it's going to get really bad. But because the time frame is further out, just outside of the time frame of regular business decisions, which is closer to you know one day to five years at most uh, for for most businesses, um, then that is hard to factor in that data because if you make a decision about tomorrow or if you're investing in a property for the next two years, it may or may not be relevant to take into account sea level rise. Um, but, in, but if nobody takes into account sea level rise today, by the time it is within that investment horizon, it will be way too late, uh -huh. <laughs> way too late to do anything about it. So it, it sounds like on the one hand, uh, unlike other black swan events or, or something that is a rather extraordinary and unanticipated risk, a climate change is a rather certain risk, you're saying, that there are mm -hmm. going to be substantial changes. The difficulty is it's geospatial. Where is the risk going to occur? What is the magnitude of the risk uh, in a particular location or a, or a risk to a particular business operation? Um, I, can, I understand that. And the difficulty of both having this certainty of change, but a difficult, granular understanding enough to advise people, that seems to be one way to think about this problem. Let me suggest another one and see if there's a contrast here. Um, you know, one of the great things about uh, about businesses and, and the business leaders that we've admired is the visionaries, the people who, without data, without analysis, anticipated things like the telephone or mass communications or diff, uh, investments in, in business models that did not exist prior to that time, and they were considered a bit wacky. I'm wondering if the, the, the other way to look at climate change, given its certainty, the, the fact that it is actually occurring, where are the visionaries and who are the visionaries are saying, look, I can get down in the weeds and, and, and break this down to a level that is so fine and, and find uncertainty and things like that. But I know what's going on here. We know that the world's changing. There is a way to position uh, a company to take advantage of the shift. Are there visionaries out there who are less data-driven and more vision-driven? Yes, for sure. And and I I would hate to contrast and, and make it sound like it's either one or the other, because often you'll find uh, visionaries who then are able to really back their vision and, and, their, uh, Bill Jackson. and, their, and their plan with really strong data. So I, I don't see them as, as, as opposite at all. Um, you're seeing, you know, there's some really interesting uh, companies. There's companies that are creating water out of thin air, literally. Um, that will come in really handy when, <laughs> when we start 
as we see increasing drought and water stress in a number of regions in the US and in, in other parts of the world, uh, if you can start creating large scale water panels the way we have solar panels for, for electricity. Um, they are, there's of course companies that have been uh, doing a lot of work on, on analytics, um, but that's not necessarily a new business model per se. Um, there are companies that are removing carbon from the air. Um, those technologies are not necessarily at scale yet or, um, or financially viable, depending on which ones you look at. But there are certainly people trying to bring technology and, and uh, meaningful change to help provide solutions and, and help us move in the right direction. Part of the challenge has been if the market isn't sure that climate is really a thing, then capital can be really hard to find for those businesses. And, and that's changing now because the markets have realized that climate is a very, very serious risk. And also that there are opportunities because we're going to need new technology, new solutions, and that some of those companies are going to be extremely successful. So you're also seeing investors who develop funds that are focused not only on green technology, on efficiency and, uh, and carbon uh, emission reduction or removal, but also that are focused on adaptation and technologies that are going to help us adapt and live in this world that we are seeing ahead of us um, with more extreme weather events and higher temperature and less water and, and a lot of challenges coming from those. Man, this is interesting stuff. Uh, I, I'm thinking about... Um the like broad corporate landscape. And I'm wondering uh, if the momentum right now, given that th this is the this is the status quo, these are the companies that kind of got us here, if you will. This is our current uh, uh, buffet of, of, of the market. And I'm wondering if the if there's a consensus or uh, if they're if we're coming toward a consensus, if there's a, a trajectory here, where we are, um, where we are like going to adapt by adjusting the way that we pollute CO two, or if we're just not going to that the 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 energy that this whole economic Momentum. system, yeah, I mean our whole global economic system these days is just incredibly energy intensive, and it's that is what's driving the climate change. I mean, I don't need. Like, I'm not talking about the risk of a particular location here. I'm saying that the whole system, the whole planet is being poisoned by the fact that we are not accounting for carbon in the market. It's a major market failure, I would argue, Emily, that we are not doing this. And I'm wondering if these corporations are going to stand for it. I mean, like, are we going to ride this fiction forward or are we going to make like a pivot, a hard pivot? or maybe something in between, but I would love to get your thoughts on that. That is very much the question right now. Um, and, and it's known as transition risk, energy transition, but also um, there's a lot of people trying to understand what are different possible futures, um, different scenarios that might pan out where maybe we are smart and we invest <clears throat> early <laughs> or at least as soon as we can given where we are um, into transforming our energy systems in a way that avoids major disruption where we're able to uh, change how we fuel our cars and maybe even how we move maybe we don't move by car um, or not as much uh, change how we produce energy in a way that doesn't create uh, a series of bankruptcy in the oil and gas sector that could be quite devastating to the economy at large, uh, given how many people invest in those companies, right? So uh, can you do that in an orderly, efficient fashion? Uh, or do we keep uh, kicking the ball, <laughs> kicking the can and uh, down the road and, and, and then in 10 or 15 years from now, we hit a big wall and we have to do that really fast. And it's very disorderly is the euphemism that's used for that um, with with really large impact on, on certain sectors, uh, all the fossil fuel industry and, and, you know, upstream and downstream from uh, from those companies. Um, or do we do nothing? And how bad does it get? And, and part of the challenge is we have a pretty good understanding of what happens in the 
orderly or disorderly scenario in the sense that we know exactly who will be <laughs> affected from a financial standpoint. Whereas we're, I don't think we're doing such a great job of modeling the economic and financial impact of the physical impacts of climate change. I think mm -hmm. we are just starting to really start to model. I think we're unable to model a lot of those complex uh, risk vectors where um, it might get hot, but what's important is maybe not so much the heat, but the fact that you can't grow a certain type of food somewhere. And then you have uh, issues with, you know, food shortages and maybe there's war or migrations and, uh, and that has all kind of other impacts on, on humans and on the economy. Um, so we're comparing apples and oranges because on the one hand, we are able to say, wow, this is going to cost a lot to change the system. We need to, you know, invest all this money to completely rebuild our energy systems and, and, you know, what happens to the big oil companies. And on the other hand, we have this more distant future where we know it's a little apocalyptic. Um, we know a lot of the poor, most vulnerable populations are harmed, but we don't translate that in scary numbers in terms of impact to the financial system. Yeah. And, and we, as someone said, you know, what, why are we doing risk management and stress testing for, uh, for four degree uh, temperature increase at four degree, the earth is not livable. There is no banking system. <laughs> like let's start, let's stop kidding ourselves. But, but the, there's a disconnect between those two things. And, and the, to go back to your question, there are a lot of companies right now that are a lot. There is a, a, a certain number of companies, very large companies, banks, corporates, investors who are making commitments to reduce their emissions to net zero. So reduce as much as they can and then uh, remove or compensate for the remaining emissions that they, uh, they might emit. Um, and on the one hand, it gives us hope. And on the other hand, nobody knows how we're going to get there. Um, how we really decarbonize at scale uh, in a way that is sustainable for the planet overall. So that hmm. <laughs> that is what we're going to have to figure out. Are you optimistic that the uh, that we uh, we collectively human beings can uh, can bend the curve on climate risk and climate change? Are we in a position? Are you optimistic that? given the analysis, given the data, we can make a difference here? Or as the IPC suggests, uh, the problems are baked in for several decades ahead of us, given the quantities of CO2 that have been emitted to date and that is currently being emitted. Are you optimistic? Can we bend this thing or what do you think? Um, the fact that I created a company focused on physical impacts and adaptation in 2012 will probably tell you that I'm not yeah. terribly optimistic and <laughs> that I strongly believe we need to pay a lot more attention to adaptation, but it's, it's both, right? It's not an either or, uh, and that's important to understand. We need to transition and to prepare because we're still going to have a lot of impacts. Um, we need to prepare for those impacts and we need to reduce emissions because if we don't, then it will become completely unmanageable. And we're already seeing how unmanageable it is. Look at the wildfires in California and in the Western US. Look at the storms on the East Coast. This is going to become the new normal. Um, and so uh, I think there's a lot we can do. I think uh, human ingenuity uh, and, and, and all the resources, uh, intellectual and financial capital that we have can bring a lot of positive change. Uh, and we need to go all in for that. Um, are, is that going to be enough? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'd like to ask a, a, a question about the financial uh, services industry or the, or the financial industry worldwide. And by this, I mean the folks who control uh, billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in investment capital. Uh, can we expect, as, as a community of people, can we reasonably expect the financial, or should we expect the financial investment industry to be a leading player in the response to global climate change? Are we putting our chips on the right square if we say, you know what, the folks who control the money and the investments opportunities out there are going to be leaders in the transition. Is that a reasonable thing to expect? 
I think it's a really powerful and effective uh, lever. And the reason I think that is because they have less skin in the game in terms of emotional attachment to certain business models or certain industries. If you talk to the oil and gas industry and say, all right, guys, that was fun, but we're going to phase out oil and gas now, it's an existential threat and it's really hard to take in. And that's why you've seen a lot of pushback, to say the least, from, from some of the companies, um, oil and gas companies. If you tell an investor, hey, you're going to lose a lot of money, are you sure you want to invest here? Um, then they, I think, are going to have a more rational response and say, wow, <laughs> you're right. Um, so either I work with my clients because I need to help them and also they're going to need more capital for this transition and to decommission some facilities or plants that they might not need anymore. But also I'm going to start putting my chips elsewhere, invest in new technology and uh, and make sure that I protect the, the capital that I've invested. So um, I think it's very powerful lever. I think we're seeing the largest institutions in the world starting to take this very seriously. You're seeing CEO level, boardroom level conversations about how much of a risk this is for the system in general and for uh, individual institutions. And those large institutions, very well resourced, extremely smart people who have now realized how dangerous climate change is to, to the financial system are going to help change uh, mentality and, and drive things across the entire system, including smaller banks or investors who maybe haven't had as much of a chance to think about it or don't have a team to look at the data, but who are going to uh, benefit from this analysis and from this change in the market um, where we're going to see capitals being being redirected. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about uh, through this conversation is that on the one hand, we're talking about climate risk, which we can definitely put a dollar figure on. But of course, our the, the whole economic, global economic system is a socioeconomic system. Uh, climate change could bring about uh, social changes, uh, instability, human migration, uh, failure of governments. I mean, these are all often uh, referenced when people kind of hypothesize about the doomsday scenario. But Emily, I'm, I'm, I noticed that uh, Moody's has the ESG uh, group. So this is Environment, uh, Society and Governance. Social and Governance. Social and, so, governance, me, social yeah. and governance. And uh, would you just kind of talk through how these things are connected uh, and, and why they're connected? Sure. So um, so climate is part of this broader uh, group, ESG Solutions. Um, and we very much look at this with a what we call a dual materiality lens, which is a big word to say we care not only about financial risk, but also about doing the right thing. And so there's the, this drill materiality refers to the fact that we're going to be looking at whether a company is doing well, not just by its financial shareholders, but also by its stakeholders more generally. And so its stakeholders are its employees, its customers, the communities where it operates, the planet at large. Um, and each company, depending on their business model, their industry, uh, is going to have more or less impact on this broader set of stakeholders. And part of the analysis that we provide is looking at how a company's taking commitments and meeting those commitments around a range of issues related to social rights, human rights, governance, uh, environmental issues, uh, in addition to climate. And so for climate, that translates as looking at not only the financial impact and the and the risk exposure, as I was mentioning earlier, but also looking at things like, uh, does the company have a target for net zero to reduce emissions? How um, are they positioned to meet these targets? How far are they? How credible is their plan to meet those targets? And, and that touches on both the fact that for some of those companies, it is a financial risk if they don't meet their targets and reduce emissions. But also for a lot of companies, it's the right thing to do, even if it's not a material, financially material risk. What I think there's also a lot of um, metrics that we look at around uh, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals that were uh, set up by the by the United Nations. Um, 
And so we're trying to look more holistically at impact and how companies are affecting the world around them. So that's it's this uh, dual lens that we have. Um, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily able to capture all the downstream big picture effect, especially because climate is global. And so by virtue of emitting carbon, you hold responsibility in all kinds of disasters that are well beyond the, the geographic or, or immediate reach of your company. Um, but but it is part of the bigger picture. And let's explore one uh, one more level down into this uh, into the relationship between the envir- uh, between the uh, investment community broadly, say globally, the capital investment world, as you said, the and and the role of government in the transitions that we're facing. Uh, you mentioned that the investor community is able to be more dispassionate, is not wedded to a particular economic model. And if there is risk and there's a chance that they can, as I put it, lose your ass financially by staying in a particular sector, they're going to be willing to move as investors. That gives me some confidence that capital will move in relation to failed business models or models that need to transition. On the other hand, the the government is beginning to, we're starting to see, for example, in California, initiatives that would prohibit in some communities the installation of natural gas in residential and commercial development because they don't want a fossil fuel-based system, the electrification movement in some parts of the country. Um, where in the balance of the transition, in terms of effectively responding to climate change, how much of the solution is going to be driven by private sector investment decision making versus government action and is there a preference between the two in my view it's it's all hands on deck and um i, I should probably say i'm i'm not um i can't give policy advice per se as uh, on behalf of, of moody's but um, what I will say is what works well in, uh, in other countries or what we've seen in the past is it's this combination of financial economic decisions combined with policy incentives of regulation that might provide this extra mile where you've reached the limit of what you could do with an economic decision. Um, and then you can go beyond by either adding economic incentives, for example, with uh, uh, tax incentives for solar panel, or by regulation by saying, yeah, it's not the most economic choice, but it's the right choice for the long term. We make a policy decision that this is wise. Um, so you really need both. Part of the challenge is that there are a lot of policies that are sending conflicting incentives. We still um, subsidize a ton of fossil fuels. And so we are distorting the price signal by making fossil fuels cheap. Mm. We are missing, we're failing to capture the broader cost of burning fossil fuels and the broader, what's called the externalities in, right. in economics, right? All the negative impacts that happen out there, but that are not priced into the price of gasoline at the pump. Right. Um, so this is where policy comes in and can uh, either help factor in this additional price or set rules that we're going to do things that maybe cost a little more but protect people's health and welfare and therefore it's worth it. Right. The tragedy of the commons is the flip side, perhaps, of the tragedy of the horizon. Uh, there, it does seem that the government has uh, a particularly important role in this transition and, and no way around it, in my opinion. The question is, is there clarity of policy that can drive or help drive investment decisions in a different direction? Um, what, what I want to ask you about is market. I want to talk a little bit about market access and about shifting uh Let's talk about it in terms of the energy industry. Um, there is a, a, a significant, as you know are well aware, emerging industry on offshore wind power in the United States. There is a well-established offshore wind industry uh, in Europe. In fact, there was a day, I believe, last year where uh, the power production for the UK was uh, there was zero uh, coal-powered energy for a couple of days. Uh, because the wind power industry has gotten powerful enough uh, in terms of what it can do. One of the questions I wonder about, there's a lot of money to may, be made in the, in the traditional power production sector. Oil and gas isn't going to go, any, go away in the next two or three decades. There's a ton of money to be made. 
coal-fired production is, is still meaningful around the world. Um, as these new technologies come online, uh, they're going to have to battle their way into the market, and there are going to be vested interests that are going to try to prevent that market access. Do you see that market access as a, a as a problem for emerging technologies? Is there, or are you optimistic that these new uh, producers, power producers, can find their way onto the grid and find their way onto a utility bill? I, I am certainly optimistic because we've seen that it's happening and it's working really well, and that nowadays, uh, solar, the cost of solar, for example, has dropped dramatically. Um, the more we add regulations that factor in uh, environmental, social, health impacts of other fuels, say coal, for example, the more expensive coal becomes. In fact, right. So you're you're starting this. Um, you're starting to see the this price trade off. This uh, uh, this point move, but also you're going to need government um, intervention to shift the system. If you think about transportation in particular, I don't know that we know for sure what the future of transportation looks like, whether it's EV or hydrogen or some other technology that we haven't really thought of, but we all need to move in sync. We need the car manufacturers and we need the fueling stations, whatever the fuel is. Um, we need the, the public transportation. We need the laws around how, what's regulated, how. So you do need a, a stronger coordinating hands than what just the market itself could do. Um, and we've gone through this kind of systemic investment shifts in the past. And, and when it was purely led by the market, often it's been maybe a little inefficient at times because you had competing infrastructure being set up, competing systems, or you end up with systems that are not compatible between AC and DC or, you know, from one country to another. So right. some guidance, coordination, uh, incentives, investments as well uh, from the government can really help make sure that this happens in a coordinated and efficient fashion. Well said. Uh I want to talk to you about uh, kind of some of the latest trends that you are seeing. Um, this has been a hell of a couple of years here, Emily, with kind of global shit going on between the pandemic. <laughs> I'm telling you. That it's the, a podcast. Yep, yep. We can, we can you say, can say that. We can say that. Yeah, that's right. Talk about, talk about a lack of it governance. It has hit the fan, as they would say. <laughs> it has. It has. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about, of course, we, I can tick through just the things that come to mind, which is the big heat wave in Oregon, um, which was attributed. Scientists came out very quickly and attributed that to uh, anthropomorphic climate change. We had our freeze here in Texas, Peter, which was utterly mm -hmm. bizarre and created utter chaos uh, around the city with frozen pipes, et cetera, and the power out. Uh, you know, we had we just had Hurricane Ida rip through. Uh, I certainly the Louisiana coast here on ASPN. We we pay a lot of attention to what's going on there. But what was interesting to me is the the down, you know, the, the damage that happened in the northeast as that storm continued to blow through and create major, major flooding. And of course, I'm reminded of Germany and the the photographs that we saw of water just flooding through these old German towns that looked like they had been there for, oh, hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it's like, hey, uh, uh, clearly this place doesn't flood that frequently. I mean, there's an old community. And so I, I'm wondering, Emily, from your position here, you, you talk to some, I have to imagine, you talk to some really interesting people. At the thought leadership level that you interface with, have sentiments shifted um, just kind of in the gut. I mean, we are living organisms here. We we live in the environment, for God's sakes. I mean, this is this is our planet from which we came. Uh, have the sentiments changed just kind of experientially people going through um, life these days? Yes. I, I don't have great data, though I, there is data out there. But uh, my experience anecdotally looking around me, um, family members and, and, and friends and, and further circles, um, climate has become a, an accepted reality for people who really weren't paying that much attention uh, back 10 or 15 years ago, uh, or a topic of great interest, a topic of great concern. 
Um, and and you, you see data showing, for example, that in the US, the vast majority of Americans strongly believe that climate change is happening and that we should be doing something about it. Um, so that message can get a little lost sometimes, though, um, and, and then the polarization doesn't help. Right now, we have a government that is uh, representing these concerns from a, a large majority of Americans, um, and that's translating into policy. Um, but we also know that folks can have a short memory. And as of the spring, I was noticing that people were not talking about the physical impacts of climate change anymore because most of the extreme weather events happened in the summer and it had been six to eight months <laughs> uh, and since something really really bad had happened in the u.s i mean not for texas obviously there was this winter but and then and then everything happens all over again the wildfires and the storms and the hurricanes and they're like oh it's really happening um we're seeing people who are factoring that in their way of life decisions as well we're certainly in the bay area I, um, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, where smoke has become a seasonal pattern uh, and a, a real impact on quality of life, uh, let alone safety for those who live in, uh, uh, in the Sierra, um, people are factoring that into where they're going to leave decision and investment decisions. So it is changing how people think and, and experience their, their global um, environment. Well, I like to say uh, reality is a persistent and effective teacher, and uh, <laughs> you can you can deny it until it, the pain is is too high, and the shift is beginning to occur. And I think uh, I, I I agree with you. I think that uh, climate denialism is sort of an anachronistic view of the world and not taken seriously. In uh, I would hope in in the investment community and in uh, thought leadership uh, in the public and the private sector. Um, I have to I have to ask a question on behalf of my very good friend uh, Charles Price. Uh, Charles and I have been friends for about thirty years. We get a pint of beer a couple times a week, and I can tell you that for the last year, almost every time that I've seen Charles, he wants to talk to me about Lake Mead, uh, which is the reservoir behind Hoover Dam. Uh, it is now at thirty five percent capacity. It is barely above its power production minimum uh, in terms of the lake level. Uh, it is the one of the key features of a water system uh, serving 40 million Americans through the southeast, uh, southwest part of the United States, and particularly in California, where you are from. Mm -hmm. um, it, I'm just looking at this, and if I uh, uh, tell me what you think about the fact that we are in this historic drought, that the level of the lake has never been this low since it was filled after the construction in the 1930s. Uh, when President Roosevelt uh, authorized this project. Looking at that as a risk and as a financial opportunity, boy, um, if I had a billion dollars and came to you and said, Emily, I want to go down to California. You need water. I, I need to start building desalinization plants. We are going to make a killing. Would you say good decision, bad decision? I think that's the right thinking. I won't comment on that specific decision because there's broader questions, right? How energy efficient is it? How do you power your desalinization plant? Um, what happens to the local wildlife? <laughs> it's always more complicated than it appears, but certainly thinking about the big picture, looking at the technologies that are going to help us making investments is, is the right way to think about it because this is not this may be the worst the, the worst uh drought year in however many decades um, but it's also the best year of the coming century and so it's only going to get worse um for for a lot of those impacts even if we reduce carbon emissions i i as i certainly hope we do uh, it's going to take time, right? The, the earth is not something where you can turn on and off to switch around weather patterns. It, it takes decades to, to readjust. So uh, yes, absolutely. There's a lot of needs to invest big on game-changing technology. You know, I, 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 I think about these transitions that have to be made in this and these investment strategies. And you're right, it is absolutely complicated. Uh, uh, desalinization is a very, very intensive technology, uh, and it can be a huge carbon producer depending on how that system is powered. Uh, there are some emerging and interesting alternatives to uh, fossil fuel-based uh, energy for, for desalinization around the world. Uh, but it, it, it comes down to, to, to when, and, and when and how much money are we going to put on the table 
to effectively begin to change the setup. Um, and this is something that you know Tyler was alluding to earlier. We really do have to try to get off of fossil fuels for tra- in the transportation and the energy production sector. We really do have to find ways to deal with the drought that is going to be affecting the southwest part of the United States and 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 tens of millions of people. This is a physical problem that's going to take construction and dollars and. Are you, uh, as, as a person in, the, in sort of the catbird seat of, of the investment and risk analysis on climate, um, is that asset shift happening in a way that's sort of giving you a smile on, the, on your face in the morning, or is it slow to emerge? Is it, happening, it, it, is it happening quickly, and is it happening on the right scale right now, either in the U.S. or around the world? I think it's happening. Um, it's it's still a little slow. Uh, there's a lot more that could be done. And that goes back to the earlier conversation about how do you set up incentives so that those investments become more attractive? How do you remove incentives so that alternative fossil fuel-based investment aren't looking so sexy anymore? There's a lot of inertia around um, new new technology, uh, investors need to understand the, the return on investment, and so they need reliable projection of what's going to be delivered by a certain technology. When you have a new technology, you maybe don't know that for sure, especially if you look further out and it has a, if it's a long-lived project than 20 years. So there's more risk there. The technology might not pan out or the context might change further. Um, but we need more of this risk, uh, of this capital willing to take on this risk. Um, and and this is also where we need to invest into systems at scale. Uh, and I don't know that we're ready to make that bet yet for some technology or for some issues that we deal with. And others, the information's there. One of the, one of the things we work on right now, for example, is on um, buildings and making uh, buildings net zero. There's a lot of technology um, with a with the right analytics, you can identify just the right combination of energy efficiency and renewables and uh, and other just retrofitting you can make to your building to get there efficiently, cost efficiently. I think we'll see more investment if there is more confidence from investors that the policy context is going to be stable. And I'm not sure that in the U.S. we have that stability to say for sure, of course, the next administration will absolutely continue the climate policy that is now being rolled out by the Biden administration. And so that makes it very hard to invest in long-lived infrastructure. Damn it. I don't like to hear it, but I think you're right uh, that the investment community is going to be looking at the governmental context and whether or not uh, the Biden uh, emphasis on, on climate response is going to survive beyond his single term uh, given the polarity of of policy choices that are in America today, and uh, but Emily, I don't think we have time for that. I got to tell you, the, the investment community knows, and I understand there's money to be made and money to be lost, and there's stability in the governmental sector. But uh, boy, counting on clarity of government policy on an issue of this magnitude is sort of like <laughs> talk about a one in a million chance. I don't think we're going to have it. And I'm hoping that the investment community is willing to do what is necessary for the greater good here and uh, roll the dice. Uh, there's a lot of people with a lot of money and they can afford to lose a few billion. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've got to say that we really need the business people to yeah, get into this space, on. because what I've noticed yeah. is in the climate space, we are Ph.D. rich. We have a lot of great, great, outstanding science yeah. that has happened and we are measuring like hell. But we need the business mind. Yeah. These are the you know, per- personalities. No excuses. Personalities, man. There's different people, there are different strokes for different folks. And we need those profiteering uh, business-minded, get in there, start the thing to dive freaking in. It's yeah. it, it's a yeah. ripe opportunity. I want the leadership from the business community. Well. I do. I want that energy in yeah. there because it could really move the ball uh, in an exciting way. I just wanted to sneak that in there before <laughs> before we wrap up. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll finish on a, on a positive note then is I have been really amazed and surprised because I am not that much of an optimistic and and really positively impressed by the change that we've seen in the market in the past 6 to 12, maybe 18 months at most, but really just in the past year 
the level of commitment that we've seen from investors and, and banks, uh, I, that gives me hope because that feels more, uh, more real, but maybe more long-lasting in a way than um, than some of the policy shifts that we can well, that we can see where elections could really change yeah. <laughs> things. Um, if if it's become clear to the financial community that climate is a risk and that the right way to manage this risk is to reduce emissions <laughs> and to invest in adaptation then we're, we're going to see progress well you you know that you when you say that you're speaking the truth uh that is what needs to happen we'll see if we can do it uh, human affairs is a complex exercise and uh, not not always uh rationality is not always uh the highest order uh Thank you, Emily, very, very much for sharing your insights and expertise with the listeners on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Emily Mazzucarati. She is the global head of climate solutions, a more grand title and more frightening title. I could not sure I could come up with other than the director of world peace, uh, but an incredible analyst and innovator and uh, forward thinker when it comes to climate risk analysis in the financial sector. Uh, we really appreciate the time that you spent with us. Uh, real honor and a real privilege, Emily, to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Beaches of salt, two hotels, my father's